You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. do this anymore welcome to the boss hog liberty podcast this is episode number 328 of east central Indiana's favorite podcast jeremiah morrill here joined by executive video producer audio engineer and uh mid-ohio ticket purchaser zach burcham uh my forever co-host mr dakota davis and what is coming down the pipe today today's episode features the return of the man the myth the legend Tom Saunders. Tom is joining us back in studio tonight. He's promoting his new book. The last time he was here was episode number 254, and I'm pretty sure that we teased you about writing a book, and Mm -hmm. it didn't take you long to deliver, Tom. And we're going to be talking about what the process was like. Daryl Radford helped Tom write the book, and he's going to be coming in a little bit late tonight, but he will be here to talk about the process. And then... uh, we're going to pull a couple of stories out of the book to talk about, but we're not going to talk about the whole thing. You've got to buy it yourself if you want to know what they all are. So make sure you stick around until the very end. I'm sure this is going to be jam-packed full of information. This show is about our lives in rural Indiana. We're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll provoke you. Uh, what the hell do we normally say here? <laughs> we're here to push your boundaries and make you think as individuals. Sometimes we'll provoke you. Other times we'll make you laugh, but hopefully you'll always learn something new. I was already thinking of the next thing I was going to talk about. Andrew Bowman, our mm-hmm. noted patron. Yes. Uh, he does. He's not at the $50 a month level, but he's a noted patron. Um, he is making a 14-hour drive to Florida tomorrow with the family. Mm. And he was asking to make us to make this one run very long tonight. <laughs> because he's got a very long ride and he's he wanted us i said andrew we got 327 episodes in the catalog but he's been saying make this one run long i think tom could talk all night i think dakota is the limiting factor here as to when he true. turns into a pumpkin on us. i'm sure that his two-year-old hudson would just is gonna love listening to this it's really gonna be up his alley when you when you're speaking directly to him i think he'll enjoy it yep hey hudson how you doing buddy <laughs> All right, we just did ourselves 20 minutes on Patreon, uh, and it was about your New Year's resolution to become a naval captain. That is correct. If you want to hear what that's about, you have to go to patreon.com slash Liberty, and uh, that's where you can get access to all the bonus episodes. We make our guests sit through the bonus episodes with us, um, so you get extra content, not just from us, but also our guests every week. You also get show notes before the show starts with any links um, that we used to come up with the show notes. And then occasionally we'll throw in a little something extra throughout the year just for you folks. And at $50 a month, you get a shout out for you or whatever you're promoting. And those folks are Miss Christy Avery from all the way in Fort Wayne, Indiana, our favorite Norwex dealer, Mr. Anthony Meyer, who is probably doing a lot of Amazon returns right now. And then Mr. Jonathan Phillips, our favorite car dealer in the United States, uh, Andy Moore Buick and GMC in Fishers, Indiana. There you go. 
Uh, I think John has sold us between the two of us and our families at least. We're we're getting to where it's like ten cars now. I know it's insane. And it's it's been it's been spectacular. Uh, if you want some merch, hit bosshogliberty dot com. Email Dakota. Email myself. We can hook you up. Um, all right, let's get right to it. At any moment, coming through that door is going to be Daryl Radford. It's going to be like Cosmo Kramer, and he's going to come. It, yeah, it, yeah, it's it's going to be great. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Daryl's also an alumni of the show, so but uh, he's been in this building at least two times. But I I almost guarantee he's going to have no recollection of it when he comes in. Mm. So it's going to be it's going to be great. When he comes to my house, he goes, "Tom, I think I'm at your house, but I don't know for sure." <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect. All right, I'm going to be keeping an eye on the uh, on the on the messenger devices to to let him in if he if he makes it. Uh, so, uh, Tom, you've been, uh, this is a year and a half now, a year after you've, you've got out of the state house. Be my second session out. Yep. Yeah. They go back so, next. So the, the, the cooling off period is over and now you can write your tell all. That's what's happened. Right. I've got everybody scared to death. They, they can no longer find you or can, or get to you. You can't lock me in the closet. <laughs> in my committee chairs. And yeah. All right. So Which this, I never had, by the way. <laughs> You never had a closet or I a never chair? had a committee chair. You were you were assistant regional whip, I think. I right? was the assistant caucus chairman. My job was to keep the members happy and help them with their office space and parking spaces and refreshments and Oh, there had to be some petty uh petty things over parking spaces over twenty some years. Yeah. How, like- why does that girl get to why doesn't she have to walk as far? She's only been here two terms. But well she it's, voted right on daylight saving time. No, no. Uh, Parking spaces in your cubicles were seniority, but depending on which party was in power. I mean, when I started out, I think I had 89. And when I left, I had seven. So I parking spot seven, parking spot seven. Yeah. Closer to the door. Good place to pull out. Just had to make it. How long would you have had to be there to be number one? Well, the speaker gets to be number one. Oh, okay. Not much risk of that happening. Was there? Uh, No. (laughs) And uh, then the, the, Minority leader gets to be number two and then everything and then ways and means. And then the rest of them are divided out. So did you ever like move parking spaces and roll in with another one bites the dust playing in your car stereo? <laughs> no, but they, uh, if somebody, if one person during session parked in the wrong place, it just screwed everybody, screwed everybody up. You guys didn't paint them, uh, like no, they do high school, like high school stu- seniors do. Cause that would be a spectacular photo op to have the state representatives out there painting their parking Maybe spots. Un- un- that. Un- Actually, that sounds that be, uh, awesome. That'd be really cool. You guys could all pick a local artist from the yeah. district you represent to paint your parking space. They have to help though. Yeah, we have what, to see the reps. Why didn't you suggest that? Why I had a little pull? I can't get in. Yeah. We need to talk to Corey about. That. I think that'd be great. You could have, and they would all try to one up themselves in their Hoosierisms, and you'd yeah. have you'd have buffalo and bison and basketballs. I the whole had a yeah. Robert Indiana logo. Yeah. There. yeah. Oh man. Oh, Aaron Aaron Dickens' ears just perked up. Uh, I think that. I think the appropriate people listen to this. We'll see when all of a sudden they do it to start the new session. We'll know it was Dakota and I. <laughs> we well, can't. You, know, you guys are the ones that want me to do away with the. Straight ticket voting. Straight ticket voting, yeah. and I did it. And then you teased me about writing a book, and I did and, it. And it so, did. Yeah, it's, 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 it's surprisingly powerful. We're making things did happen. You, did you happen to read the constituent survey questions that are that uh, Corey Criswell put out? I haven't seen him, no. Oh, uh, he was asking about weed legalization and, and uh, straight ticket voting. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Isn't that weird? It'd be interesting to know, because I had a the committee chair call a hearing of the straight t- ticket voting. And we were discussing it. He got a phone call. And then after he hung up the phone, he said, well, we're not going to take a vote on this. 
And mm-hmm. I never did find out who called him, but he told me after the meeting, he said, Tom, you had the votes to pass it out of committee. So I don't know if it was the Republican county chairman or the speaker or the governor, but somebody said, we're not going there with this. Somebody said, Tom did what? <laughs> again? again? <laughs> the entire, I, I, Indiana is always a place that disruptive forces are good because Right now, when you have, I don't know, 77 Republicans or whatever it is on the, on the, in the house, you're not going to get anything done. So if you have a way to disrupt or create a change, then something, then you can advance things down the line. Uh, and I think that might happen this year with the, uh, with the Senate election where this, the county chairs are saying, Hey, you've got a two consecutive races or you can't be a Republican running for Senate. Now we've got a very wealthy egg farmer down in uh, down in southern Indiana who's running against Jim Banks, and I think he's he's won his court case, and now it's going to go to the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. Yeah, they're going to have to make a big decision, and they're so. going to decide if the uh, I guess it's a constitutional question now, right? Like the, uh, the 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 Constitution says that you have X, Y, and Z that you have to do to be a senator, and as of right now, it's it's not that. Yeah, but then the parties decide their their rules about you know the two yeah. primaries, which we've used that. Here in Henry County on on some elections in the past. Yeah. Yeah. Matter of fact, there were some people questioning because I ran as an independent for town council. And somebody said, well, then you can't run as a Republican anymore. And I said, the letter voted in the last two Republican. The the letter of the law says you're fine. Yeah. So I don't know. It's it's interesting to see. It uh, <laughs> it depends upon who you are and who's do if the if the chairman doesn't object to it it doesn't matter at all and I I verified that with the chairman before I did it so <laughs> <laughs> of course he I think we get it chairmen's are up for election in March I think this year now no, you brought it up March. most chairmen would love to be relieved of their duties yeah, if yeah. as as I've learned yeah, uh, you as brought a it up during the bonus episode that last time you were on here and we asked if you were going to run for anything else. I said, no, I'm done. You can stick a fork in me. So I right. evidently wasn't done. So you took your oath of office this week. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, last Thursday night. So you're d- now a town councilman for Louisville, right? I am. As an independent. Yeah. Yeah. Along with another person who ran as an independent and then one Republican who'd been on the council before. How much, it can't make much of a difference, the party affiliation on the, uh, on the town council. I know I don't feel it at all on, on the Mer- sheriff's merit board that I'm serving on now. I didn't feel it on the Memorial park board, uh, small town boards. And it, it, you don't feel the partisanship at all. I don't. And that's the reason I ran as an independent, because had I ran as a Republican, there were, there would have been five of us and we would have had to have a Republican town convention, which they had to have because there were four running for the, of the three. Um, and I, that just excludes a lot of people that, I mean, the election would have been decided at the convention. So I thought in fairness to the people who lived in town, I'd run as an independent. And I, I came home with, tell me once you run for the town board. And I go, I don't want to do that. I don't even know if I can get elected. And, um, and then there was some things said about the road. And I read on a Facebook one night that don't, a town board member put on Facebook that if you had a problem with what was going on with the road, to call the state highway, don't call us. This uh, is the national part, the, the national road, yeah, or uh, yeah, U.S. board, yeah. And uh, I, I went downtown office the next day, and I said, you know, I understand people have questions, but the town needs to call a meeting with the state. Let's get them over here. You don't want everybody calling the state highway. And 
I thought, hell, I'll just run for town council. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you're back in it again. Back yeah. in it again. And, so why write a book? What What was your, uh, what was the thought process? Well, I'm jokingly, I have a, a lot of good stories. I said they can't make a movie of my life because they've already been made. It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey in a little town of Bedford Falls, Tom Saunders, a little town of Louisville, and Forrest Gump. Forrest ended up in a lot of places. How do you ever end up there? <laughs> I, I've met a lot of people yeah. and ended up in a lot of places, and they thought, Tom, how'd you get here? So, and I had a couple of media people who worked for me at State House, and I'd tell these stories about going to Bobby Kennedy's house in his swimming pool and talking to Teddy Roosevelt's daughter and you know, meeting the guy that was handcuffed to Lee Harvey Oswald when Ruby shot him. And they go, you need to write a book. And the one went as far as even buying me a portable tape recorder. And she said, when you're traveling for your other job, just talk and then we'll type <laughs> it for you. Well, it's no fun to talk to yourself. So that's where Daryl helped me out. Oh, you need a podcast, Tom. Yeah, well, that's what you can, need to do. Yeah. You need to get with Chris Spangle, our syndicator, and he can he and he can set you up with a uh, a history podcast where you just talk about your the 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 wandering roving elephants tour you've done. Yeah, and you know uh, that's part of history that needs to be preserved, even if it's my little history. So I got a granddaughter. If it, nothing else, she'll know what her papa did or didn't do. You, so how many you presidents? Are, how many presidents have you met now? I've met. Uh, it's in the book. I just saw well, it. Well, I've met them all in my lifetime, except John Kennedy. So, and and corresponded with them. And, all of the ones in your lifetime? Yeah. Does that start with Eisenhower? No, I take that back. I take that back. I've corresponded with all of them in my lifetime. From uh, from Ronald Reagan to current everybody, yeah. And you had you and Nixon had some connection as well. We weren't personal friends, but we <laughs> he always answered. I got invited to his house in San Clemente, and and uh, and um, I, and it's funny because I got to meet you, David Eisenhower you're, later. You're the only person I see that walks around in his Nixon sh- sweatshirt still I, to I this was brand day. New. We just <laughs> did you see? Me I now? saw it made the newspaper, and there's there's Tom Saunders wearing his reelect Nixon. It's better than it's better than the 2024 option. Yeah, it sure is. Oh, um, <laughs> We went. We took the roving elephants to California in October, and we did the Rick's, Nixon and, and Reagan libraries. And I picked up that sweatshirt while we were out there. All right, I interrupted you. So you, you, uh, Eisenhower's children, the Eisenhowers and Nixons married each other, right? Yeah, Richard Nixon's daughter Julie married David Eisenhower's grandson, and uh, David met the roving elephants in the Green uh, Gettysburg, and. Uh, I told him, I said, I had the opportunity to meet the president in his home in San Clemente. And my brother-in-law was on the, uh, he was a Marine on the Kitty Hawk and was stationed at Camp Pendleton, which is right next door to where Nixon lived. And we flew out there and I said, come on, Bob, go with us. And he said, oh, you'll not get past the first gate. And we drove up and I buzzed the buzzer and told him who I was. And the gate opens up and he says, you're going to get me thrown out of the military. And I said, they know we're coming, Bob. We didn't ever get past the second gate. So we get to the second gate and they open that gate up for us. And, and, uh, then here comes a guy on a golf cart. And if you watch the Nixon Frost interviews, Nixon retired with a general Brennan, who was his military person. And here he is on the golf cart. 
And he comes out and explains to me that Julie Nixon Eisenhower had went into labor that morning for their first grandchild. So the president and Mrs. Nixon had gone to the hospital. They offered their apologies and said, if you can come back tomorrow. Well, we didn't, we were leaving to come back to Indiana. But when I met David Eisenhower, I told him, I said, you kept me from meeting. <laughs> <laughs> that is spectacular. Yeah. I, I, I thought you were going to say, so they said, if you just come down to the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite that. He was far. always nice about re- writing letters and and returning. I keep telling my kids I've got some decent autographed and historical documentation that when I'm dead and gone, they need to sell. It might be worth a little money. <laughs> sell? No, they need to keep that around, Tom. We give it to the historicists. I mean, we uh, uh, we went to uh, Washington when I was a legislator and. Mitch Daniels was the budget director, and we went to visit him in the Eisenhower office building after hours, and they just brought the national budget to him that he was going to present to Congress the next morning. And uh, it was only about this thick. Our state budget's about this thick, and they were stacked on his desk in a nice book form. And I said, Mr. Daniels, could I have one of these? He said, yeah. And I said, well, would you sign it for me? And he signed it, and I stuck it in my backpack. The next morning, we're back over there for another meeting, and there's only about 20 of us. And Tommy Thompson, who was the Secretary of Transportation, came in and was talking to our group. And when he got finished, he said, oh, there's somebody out here who wants to talk to you. Well, in walks George Bush, the second. And he stands up there for a few minutes and talks, and then he gets down off the podium. And he comes up, and I said, Mr. President, would you sign your budget for me, please? And he goes, you have my budget? Congress doesn't have my budget. <laughs> and I reach in my backpack and pull it out, and he signs it. And I come home a couple of weeks later and I'm watching C-SPAN and I see the whole thing on television. So that's, you know, <laughs> documentation. That's a true autograph. So, uh, and then it, and then they'll someday they'll, for Forrest Gump too, they'll use that video. Yep. Yep. And it's, it was right there. I didn't drop my pants. To you must show have, my, oh my, Forrest did. <laughs> must have drank me about 14 Dr. Peppers. To Linda Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, you mentioned you have a lot of stories and we've mentioned that before too. Um, you have a, you're a man of many stories. How did you, how did you uh, thin down the stories to just fit in 300 pages? Well, yeah, we had to keep it to 300 because because of the price of publication. But um, we just, ta- I just mm-hmm. talked to Daryl. Uh, if you read a section in the book that um, in 1950, when Tom started school. If you had trouble reading or adding, you were slow. And I was a sickly child, and I missed – I had hay fever really bad. So I missed the first several weeks of school until um, we had a frost and killed the golden rod. And so uh, I missed school, and then I was a little slow. And uh, Mrs. Durham, my first report card, other than saying Tom talks too much, um, said Tom's a little slow, but we think he can catch up. So they passed me on to second grade. I get to second grade, same problem, uh, talks too much. We think he can catch up. They passed me to third grade. And when I get to third grade, Nellie Bills said, uh, Tom's a little slow and Tom's not going anywhere. It took me 50 years to be able to tell that story and not be embarrassed. But then you fast forward to when I go get my driver's license and they tell me to read the eye chart and I read the eye chart and she asked me to read it four times. 
And on the fifth time, I said, well, what's going on? And she says, well, you're reading it. You're just not reading it in the right order. So you can't add if you if your numbers aren't, if you're not seeing them in the right order. And our oldest son, Andy, was diagnosed with dyslexic. And I feel that I probably had a little bit of that. But in the 1950s, Tom was just know. slow. Yeah, they, there was no uh, no adaptation for yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, makes interesting. Makes know, a lot of sense. I know when I failed the third grade, I I was just devastated. I remember going to my grandmother's and just crying and crying and crying that all my buddies are going to leave me. You know, so. Oh yeah, I bet. Well, they say it goes on your permanent record, but nobody ever nobody ever chases those back down. Where are those permanent? Yeah, they're they're, they're probably they're not in the Louisville school anymore, right? No, no. there's a picture <laughs> in the book of Nellie Bills, who I thought an awful lot of my third grade teacher. Uh, of course, when I started the second, of course, you know, Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny and she's earmuffs like, kids. Yeah, yeah. Earmuffs. Yeah. Well, help out Santa Tom. Help yeah. out the Easter Bunny, Tom. You've been through this before, so you don't <laughs> <laughs> You were a veteran. You're the most experienced third grader they had. Yeah. No wonder you liked her so much. You got her two, three times. Yeah. <sighs> so the title of the book, Tom, what are you doing here? And I'm Guessing that that is, uh, like you said, with the uh, the Forrest Gump theme of just that that wasn't the title places. I came up with. My title was "All They Can Tell You Is No," but the publisher wanted to adjust the title, so we came up with this. And the forward the forward is written by Jim Shella, who is a uh, legendary Indianapolis uh, media. He covered Wish TV, which was the CBS channel for years and years in Indianapolis. Yeah. He. Uh, he wrote the forward in your book. He was the political reporter. Uh, and he talks about the story where when you first got elected, it was the, the janitor has, has gone to the state house yeah. essentially. Yeah. Uh, but he, he says that actually wasn't true. You were the, you were the assessor in between. Well, I, I had a job between there, but and that, that's the Forrest Gump story. I mean, it, it has a good, it's a good story. I mean, Mr. Smith goes to Washington or whatever. I mean, um, and, and George Bailey, it's, I, I, you know, there's just so many coincidences that, uh, uh, and I knew Jim as being a county chairman, uh, when Steve Goldsmith, Rex Early, and we had a couple other people who were running for governor. And I asked Jim to come over and do like a, um, Indiana weekly review with the, with the gubernatorial candidates. And I had four big chairs sitting on the stage out at the Smith building and Steve Goldsmith doesn't show up after he'd made the commitment. And, uh, we've had that happen on this show before too. And, and you'd ask, Jim would ask a question and Rex early go, I don't know. Let's ask Steve, you know, made a big joke out of it. <laughs> Did you leave the, leave the empty chair on the stage? I left the, I thought, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm leaving this, you know? Uh huh. And, uh, then two nights later after it made Indiana weekly review and made the newspapers nationwide or statewide that, that Steve Goldsmith hadn't showed up. Um, Steve calls us and his staff had given me one excuse why he didn't show up. And he gave me a different one. And he said, I didn't know this was going to be such a big deal. My mom come to town. I go, well, why didn't you bring your mother with you? You know, the thing <laughs> of it was I had endorsed Rex early for governor as county chairman. And I told Steve, I said, you know, yes, I endorsed Rex early, but I wasn't naive enough to think that everybody in that room was going to vote for Rex early. You had a, you would have had a, a good opportunity to meet people though. Who was the other candidate? Was it Whitworth at the time? Was it George Whitworth? There, maybe it was George Whitworth. And then there was an army, army general or lieutenant. There was four of them. Okay. 
I can't remember who the other guy was. It's been a long. Uh, I, my memory is is vague on that one too. Um, it's been a while. It's tough to get on the ballot too. It's possible that the the general didn't make it to the ballot. You had to get. You still had to get all the. Yeah. Hell, you had more. You hadn't even needed more signatures. He, it was probably more congressional. He, he ran in the primary. I can see his face, but I can't tell you what his name was. That's it wasn't right. Bill Frazier. I know he. No, Bill was a uh, Bill ran for Congress a number yeah, of times. Several months times. Ago. Yeah. All right. Before so we, before we move on to stories from the book, tell everybody how they can get a copy. Okay. Uh, you can go to filibuster press in Bloomington. You look that up online and, um, it's $20 for the book plus postage. You can go to Amazon, uh, or you can call me or stop by my house and, and we have them, or they have them at the uh, Newcastle Henry, Henry County Historical Society. He's the co-author has Hi, made it. Darryl. There he is. Oh, fresh off his hard-hitting interview with the Secretary of State. Welcome, sir. Does he still have a license? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could be breaking some news today. Any tell, w- welcome, Daryl Radford. We're excited to have you. You're uh, you're we're live on the uh, on the air, so to speak. Uh, so you're you're warned. <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, anything good happened tonight down at the uh, down at the the Secretary of State Rikita's event? It's a retired journalist, and uh, he wanted to know if I was fake news. Fake <laughs> 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 enough to write about him, though. Right? <laughs> you know, I have to admit, I was very impressed with his presentation tonight, and. Uh, um, I did ask him about the uh, uh, Supreme Court issue, and I thought he gave a a very thorough and reasonable answer for that. And uh, if you want to know more, read the Courier Times. Buy, buy a copy <laughs> of the paper. That's the, that's what the, the news guy's supposed to say. Yeah, I I listed it, Dakota when we were putting the notes together. Said that Daryl is a retired uh, reporter, and I said I, I had to change it to semi-retired because yeah, I knew semi-retired. I knew you were writing something today. <laughs> Oh, I, I've had people many times come to me and say, you really don't know the meaning of retirement, do you? And uh, I suppose there's a lot of truth to that. I, uh, It's in my blood, Jeremiah. Uh, I will probably do this until I can't physically type a re- uh, on, a, on a keyboard anymore or, or write with a pen or, you know, whatever. Uh, I. I think you guys are both passionate about what you do. So when you retire, you just find a different way to do it on your terms. Well, if you retire and you sit down, you die. You yeah. don't want to do that. You got to keep active and do something. You can decide as you want to do as much or as little of it as you want, as well, you care that's to, right? A nice thing. That's a nice thing. Now, I don't have any hours uh, specifically to keep, and I basically get to pick and choose what I want to do. And uh, um, it was a joy to be able to to pick and choose helping uh, uh, Tom with this book project of his. That's awesome, Zach. If you can, you crank up Daryl just a little bit there. So, Daryl, what was your role in the process of writing the book? Well, and make uh, yourself comfortable. You can. I have heard Tom mention before. In fact, I've even told him. I said, "Man, you ought to write a book. <laughs> you ought to write a book." And uh, uh, so, so Tom came to me and and uh, uh rick whitener his longtime uh I, what do you call rick campaign, campaign advisor yeah. uh um you know uh i've got great respect for rick and so when this looked like this was a real opportunity i said sure and especially after um after i had retired from full-time work at the courier i thought well gosh what 
what could be better than to, to, to kind of slide into a retirement role working on this project? And uh, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I said um, at the first book event we had at the Historical Society, and I mean this sincerely, Tom Saunders is the most interesting person I've ever met. Uh, many, many times during my journalism career interviewing him, uh, it would be a challenge and at times kind of frustrating because he would be saying these these uh, very eloquent things and telling these amazing stories that are of absolutely no use at all to, well, to and, the story you're writing that day, right? I can't, I can't keep up with him. <laughs> you know, I can't keep up with him. I've learned to to always have well and, and the cell phones are wonderful because now you can you can have a recorder with you wherever you go but um these have been wonderful stories and and now i think uh those who who purchase this book or or, or read it are going to find out uh just how special these stories are and uh, what an amazing knack for being in the right places at the right time and and uh, and having uh, the personality that creates all these opportunities, uh, you know, just how interesting it really is. Is this your first published book? I'm glad you asked that question. Do you have one to show? I do. <laughs> oh, not my book, your book. <laughs> oh, there it is. Uh, this is a um, revised version of Newcastle, a pictorial history. Uh, this is a book I had a chance to uh, work on uh, in 1992. Uh, G. Bradley Publishing out of Missouri came to town, and they had done history books like this in a lot of different communities in Indiana. They wanted to do one in Newcastle. They had approached um, Donnie Hamilton, who is also a historian and author and, and has done done uh, many things. Name's familiar. And one Tom. of my opponents. Well, <laughs> yeah, and, and ironically, Here's one a, of Tom's opponents. 20, 26 years, you got a lot of them. <laughs> and uh, uh, Donnie was busy at the time and said, told G. Bradley, I can't do it, but I would recommend this guy. What year was he doing that? 1992. Oh, well, that was before he ran against Yeah, me. before trying, he ran against I was trying to see if yes. he was, that's why he didn't have yes. time. Yes, <laughs> yeah, Before he ran against Tom. And so they turned to me, and uh, it's been one of the great experiences of my life to be involved in this. Uh, Doug Majors uh, had probably 90% of the pictures needed for this book. Uh, the late Mike Bertram also was very helpful in the original publishing of this book. And I'd always wanted to do an update, but I didn't have the copyright. G. Bradley Publishing had the copyright. And then they came to me uh, about a year or so ago, and he was retiring and said uh, he would be willing to sell me the copyright. And I thought, wow, this would be great timing because Newcastle's 200th birthday. And it says here right on the cover, in honor of Newcastle's 200th birthday. And so what we did was we updated portions or pages where we could, and we added as many as 40 or 50 different pages that weren't in the original book. Because we've had the 40 years of history, or 30, well, 30 well, yes, years of history, yes. right? Well, and, and, you know, some things have happened, yeah. obviously, some 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 good things uh uh, Boar's Head being one of them, Crown Equipment being another. Uh, we have two pages in the book dedicated to the restoration of the uh, cannon at Memorial Park, which was quite a behind-the-scenes undertaking. 
And uh, that canon was in bad shape. In fact, Gene Ingram, the president of the Historical Society, said he was afraid it was going to roll down the hill. Uh, and that would have been something. I mean, so... so would have uh, made good content for the Courier Times. <laughs> <laughs> would, have been, would have been terrifying for a very, very, life, yeah. very fresh-faced park board member, though. Yeah, uh, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> on my watch. <laughs> but anyway, this book, uh, we had it for sale. It it, it came in late. Uh, December 15th was when we finally got the final edition. So it looks it's a coffee table book, right? It I mean, it's, it's a it large, is. full picture. Uh, and, this is, and this has color. The original had no color in it. This well, has it, some it, color in the this back. This is made before Dakota was born. We didn't have color books in 1992. <laughs> <laughs> I was still... Not, I mean... That was just yeah. Nineteen ninety-two. My... How old were you in nineteen ninety-two? Uh, I was a twinkle in my father's eye. Oh Ooh. my gosh! Yeah. I, oh my gosh! I, I was nine. Wow. Dakota was yeah. a negative four. Yeah. What little hair I have on my head is getting grayer as we speak here. But uh, yeah, th- this has been a joy. It's for sale now. All the proceeds go to the Henry County Historical Society, which is the oldest continuously operating historical society and museum in the state of Indiana. A lot of people don't realize that. I had no idea about that. 1886, uh, uh, a group of diverse men got together and formed the Henry County Historical Society. If you have not been to the museum, please make a resolution to come. Uh, it's a beautiful place. Has it always been there in General Gross's home? Is that what- uh, it was... Actually, uh, from 1886 to 1900, it kind of was a mobile uh, mm-hmm. operation. They moved it from home to home. General Gross cool. lived in the house at 606 South 14th Street from uh, 1870 to 1900. He died in 1900. Um, he, he was a Civil War general where they say the bullets flew the thickest. He was in some major, major battles. And uh, was just a, a tremendous leader for Newcastle and Henry County. But after he died, the the house became the Henry County Historical Society Museum. Wow. And we've been there since 1902. And a lot of people in Henry County, the two things you hear is, it's been years since I've been here. Or sometimes you hear, I've never been here. So I would encourage all your listeners to... Uh, Make a resolution, come to the Henry County Historical Society, and if you want to help the museum, the museum is a nonprofit organization, obviously, so if you want to help the museum, this is a great way to help. Uh, these books are priced at forty nine ninety five, and all proceeds go to help the oldest continuously operating historical society and museum in the state. That's fantastic. Great. All right. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Tom. Uh, and what it was like for you coming in and, and I, the concept of somebody telling you a story and then figuring out, okay, how do you, how do you decide you're going to write this? And how does it, how does the process work? And you're, you're co-authors on this, but do you say, hey, I'm going to write this in Tom's voice and a third party voice, how, gathering all these stories and figuring out how it goes? Where, where, where do you even start with a project like this? Well, the approach that I took was um, very similar to the approach that I took when I worked for the Senate because I, I ended up working for um, all of the Republican senators during my time at the Senate. And I would sit down and just interview them and basically ask them what they wanted to say. 
And, uh, you know, it was funny because sometimes they would say, well, just make me sound good. <laughs> and my silent response was always, nobody voted for me. They voted for you, you know. Uh, but anyway, Tom, Tom is the most quotable person I've ever known in my life. He was gold from a newspaper standpoint. Because uh, if the, if it was a slow news day, uh, all you had to do was pick a topic and call Tom. You know, if if a uh, former uh, governor or uh, uh, House of Representatives member or historic figure died, call Tom. Chances are he's met them, talked with them, maybe even exchanged Christmas cards with them. And so, uh, a very easy relationship with Tom. And, and basically, what I tried to do in my role in the book was sit down and talk to Tom with my tape recorder <laughs> and try to weave this in his words as best I could. And a compliment, I had a lady the other day call, wrote a letter and said, oh, I could just hear Tom talking when I read it. So, oh, great. <laughs> so, great. There we go. We did what we were supposed yeah. to <laughs> Now, the book is um, um, Adventures in Public Service is the subtitle, but it does start out with you being raised in Louisville. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, Tom. I haven't read the book yet. Uh, well, I just gave it to you. You just <laughs> gave it to me, so it's, it would but, have been very difficult. You know, I, I, I keep saying oh, it's a wonderful life, Bedford Falls. I mean, Louisville was a Mayberry type, and and I grew up in a in a town. I, I had a father who was – he he worked every day, but he he was an alcoholic, and I had a mother that had some problems and spent some time in a mental institution. And you know, Hillary Clinton says it takes a village to raise a child, and the community of Louisville helped raise the Saunders kids when my dad was away working and my mom was in a mental institution. And and right out of high school, I was offered a position in a congressional office in Washington D.C. And like George Bailey, I choose to, chose to stay home in Louisville. My brother and sister were still there. They were younger than me. And so I, I turned that down to stay home. And, and one thing led to another. And so but it looks like based on the chapter and heading titles, you've, you had a pretty early interest in politics. I think I was 10 years old and. My mother's family, the Lawsons, were big Democrats, and my dad, I think, was a Republican. But I can remember setting up at the age of, I think I had to be 10 years old, watching with my mother watching John Kennedy accept the nomination for President of the United States. What 10-year-old what kid does that? I don't know. You know. And then when John Kennedy was assassinated, I wrote a letter to Jacqueline Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson and they both answered. And so that kind of started my letter writing. And just one thing led to another. And I've told well, how you, I, you catch the you catch the bug, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I talk about growing up with the Johnson boys and George went to FBI school in Washington and he graduated a year ahead of me because I failed the third grade. And uh, uh his mom asked me if I wanted to go out there with him over Thanksgiving. And I said, yeah. And I sat down and wrote Richard Nixon a letter and said I was going to be in Washington over Thanksgiving. I had a petition on the Vietnam War. I'd like to stop and present on behalf of the students and faculty of Tri High School. Sent the letter. I was student manager for the high school basketball team 
Friday night before Thanksgiving. I'm in the shower getting ready to go to a ball game. My mom comes to the bathroom door and says, you're wanted on the telephone. I said, well, who is it? And she said, they won't say. So I wrap a towel around myself, go to the kitchen where the phone hung on the wall. Tom Saunders, yes. Senior at Tri High School, yes. One moment, please, the White House calling. I kind of dropped the towel and sat down because <laughs> it seemed forever before this special assistant to the president, Michael J. Farrell, came to the phone and said, the president has received your letter and will receive you and your petition. I didn't have a petition. <laughs> Who thought he was going to answer? You know, I got a petition really quick, but, you know, got to go to the White House. Now, how did the school administrators react to you speaking on behalf of everybody in your campaign? against? I didn't ask them either, you know, but, uh, you know, Nixon sent a, a large picture and thanks to the school. And then after he left office, they didn't want it. They gave it back to me at some point. I'd like for that to go back to try high or at least to the historical society. Uh, uh, Spiro Agnew sent, you know, it was a big thing. And then, um, I didn't get to meet Nixon that first trip to Washington because I, I said, well, I can't be there Wednesday because we're going, I'm riding out there with Mrs. Johnson and we're not leaving until Wednesday. Well, can you be here Friday morning? And I said, yeah, can I bring them with me? And they said, well, bring us social security numbers. And so when we get to the White House at nine o'clock on Friday morning, we're kind of ushered out onto the South Lawn. Helicopter comes and picks up Nixon and they fly off. So in January, I'm in, uh, in class and I get paged over the PA system to come to the office. And, uh, the, Nellie Bills' husband, George, was the postmaster. He's standing there with a special delivery letter from the White House. And George goes, I'm not going back to town till I know what it says, Tom. And <laughs> it was a letter from the president inviting me to meet him in a receiving line at Indianapolis in, the, in January. And uh, the class said, well, we want to go with you. So I went back to the principal's office, and I called for this special assistant at the White House. I remember the secretary making fun of me, Martha Hoover, because when they answered, I said, when he answered, I said, well, this is Tom. And she goes, like, he knows who you are. And I said, <laughs> well, I had to tell his assistant who was calling. And anyway, so we went, I took the class to Indianapolis. They stood on one side of the sidewalk in front of the city county building. I stood on the other, got to meet Richard Nixon, got to meet Ed Wickham. And so, you know, it just, things just happened. Incredible. Just went from there. Yeah. So you've uh you've you've become the uh the anti-war republican apparently in in, in your high school age <laughs> fast forward just an honorable piece yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I had an uh, you know at that time we had the draft and I had a draft number and I can't remember what it was but it was That'll make you anti-war. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you worry <laughs> So yeah. wow. Now there, yeah. are you going to make it you're right? I'm going to send Zach to to call call for uh, an ambulance here in a moment. This is the <laughs> second thing I've interrupted tonight by <laughs> my asthmatic cough. How embarrassing! I was no, you're I, fine. I would say, well, we need a good frost, but it's 25 degrees outside, so I don't know what to blame. Now there, one. I'm just going through the chapter titles that I wanted to know what they meant. Um, running with a bullseye on my back. What's that about? Well, you have to remember when I was elected, I I defeated an incumbent, a Democrat incumbent representative, 
which threw the House into a 50-50 split. District 54 had not been reliable Republican. Oh, no. It, this it was held, UAW Chrysler Town over yeah, here. Yeah, And uh, uh, Doug Kinzer had represented the district for 12 years, yeah, was it? it? 12 years? 12, yeah. And uh, then he resigned the office and went to, I believe he went to work for Governor O'Bannon, and they appointed Dave Copenhaver to fill the remainder of his term. And I'd been uh, courted a couple of times by Indianapolis to run for the seat, but I wanted to win, and a Republican couldn't beat Doug Kinzer. So when Doug announced he wasn't, or when Dave became the legislator, I immediately said, I'm going to run for legislature, along with two other Republicans in the courthouse. But anyway, I win. I go to the state house the first day, and I'm walking down the hall, and I see John Gregg, Chet Dobas, and Jerry Dembo. And John Gregg, who was going to be the Speaker of the House, he walks up and pats me on the back and said, Tom, I hear a lot of good things about you, but to be quite honest, you got a big red bullseye on your ass, and you're not going to get jack shit you can go home and take credit for. So you just sat back and enjoy the ride. And it was like, <laughs> well, nice to meet you too, Mr. Speaker. You know? <laughs> and uh, I, I remember in, in your early days, there were a hundred, I think there's a chandelier and it had a hundred lights on it, right? Yeah. And they were talking because of this 50 50 tie that happened when you arrived and it was entirely your fault, they said. Uh, they were like, we're going to get rid of a district. We're just, we're not going to, we're never going to go yeah. through this hell again. Yeah. They were going to make 99 districts. And uh, John Gregg uh, gave me a little blip in the book and we sent it. He, I said, will you say something about the book? And he says, well, you got to send it to me. So I sent it to him to read and, and uh, I talk about how I wouldn't have been elected if it hadn't have been for Senator Beverly Guard. And he calls me one morning about 530 and he says, do you know what? He says, you talk about how Bev Guard was so helpful to you. Did you know we punished her for years? <laughs> we would never got one of her bills become law on our side of the house. once <laughs> We had to pay her back for getting involved in your campaign. So. Yeah, but then on the back of your book, it says, uh, this is from John Gregg. Um, if I'd known then what I know now, I might have even voted for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm humbled by that. When my son was in trouble, or our son was in trouble, um, John Gregg was very kind to the Saunders and uh, really did more for me than some of my Republican colleagues. And uh, John and I have become friends. I, I uh, John Gregg represented Vincent's and I'd met Red Skelton, and that's in the book, when I was a kid in Louisville. And uh, there's a when they broke the ground for the Red Skelton Performing Arts Theater in Vincennes University, John Gregg invited my wife and I down for the reception with Mrs. Red Skelton. Well, I said to John that evening, I said, well, you didn't get a very good response from the legislature. There's only about five of us here. He said, well, we didn't invite everybody. And I said, well, you don't, you don't like me. Why did you invite me? And he goes, cause your wife's from Knox County. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but he knew that. He knew yeah, that. He yeah. knew that. Yeah. Some of That's, you guys are pretty skilled at this, this politics and knowing the backstory and, yeah. and pay attention to who, who belongs where. Yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, let's move on. The legislature is not in session, earning a living. That's also covered on the back of your book. And it's, um, starting to look like, I could, I could see if I'm once I'm your age, it 
listing you don't wait all till the you're hobbies. My age. You want to, you want to do it earlier than that? I just see every year I've got something new that I've sunk my teeth into that then it's gone the next. So the, you have quite a long list on your resume for the Louisville Town Council. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, John Gregg, when he read the book, he said, Tom, I appreciate the fact you put it something in the book and how a member suffers financially. Because not every, there are some people, there are some millionaires in the legislature, but you don't want everybody out to be a millionaire. You want some people to know what it's like to pay a mortgage and car payment and send their kid, you know, struggle to send your kids through college. And, and I tried to point that out in there. It's financially a hardship for some members who have to take away three months or four months out of their livelihood to serve in the legislature. It's, uh, it's a very difficult because it's a part-time citizen legislature. If I look at my day job, Zach and Dakota and Daryl, I, you look at the careers that we've had, it's not easy to say, Hey guys, I'm going to disappear from January till, I don't know, Easter or so I'm going to just disappear and you guys have got to cover for me. Well, and if there's a special session, I might have to go back that and you still have, to work a couple of days a week because always the mayors or the commissioners or somebody wants you somewhere. So you have to have an employer or be financially able to not have to work to do the job. And and I don't want a full-time legislature. I think that would be a shame, but um, I was lucky enough to be hired by a company that let me be a legislator first and then give them the balance of the time that I could give them. And uh, when I, when they courted me, they said, oh, Tom, you won't have any trouble getting a job. There's all kinds of people want to hire legislators. Well, I was at the end of session the first year, and I didn't have a job. And I remember one of the leaders coming to me and saying, what are you going to do? I said, I guess I'll go home and hang wallpaper. That's why, you know, I was doing that on the side. Oh, no, no, you can't do that. That's that's below you. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, I had computerized the assessor's office, and the company that we bought the computer system off of, he called me and asked me what I was going to do, and and I said, I don't know. And he said, well, why don't you come to work for us? And I said, I don't know anything about computers. And he said, I don't need that. He said, I need somebody that knows people, and you know about everybody in every county courthouse across the state. That's why I want you to come to work for me. So it was a, it was a good fit. So that worked out. Oh, that's great. So tell me how long, going back to this, the, the bullseyes on your back conversation, mm-hmm. how many cycles or how many terms do you feel like you are not like the number one target of them wanting the seat back, of of getting comfortable or feeling like, okay, obviously every election you're concerned and you're doing doing the work, but at what point when you're looking back at your races, do you think, okay, I I don't think that they're investing every damn nickel they have against me uh i think the first three elections they came after me um by the fourth time which would have been eight years they were kind of back because i was not voting straight republican line i would cross over and vote with them a couple of times and i also voting. think that they gave up they thought i can't you know we can't beat this guy yeah uh, you know, look at who he's beaten. He's beaten attorneys. Yeah. Very, very smart people, very highly respected people. Um, he beat Jeremiah. 
Uh, well, yeah, much, many well, much later years. But yeah. Yes, <laughs> as I say, very. Yeah, but he campaigned people. for me in the beginning. That's, yeah, yeah. Turncloak. Um, yeah, yeah, very they, own Benedict trust him. <laughs> they threw everything but the kitchen sink at him, and they couldn't beat him. And I think, I think eventually they decided to pool their resources for more reasonable opportunities. Well, then they try to draw you out of the district. I was going to say you, well, you, you went yes. through about three or four different versions of the map in your in your time you were there as well. You had, you represented Cowan and Delaware County for the a while. First you, year, yeah, and then they then they yeah, and you know to Tom's credit. Every time they drew the map and his district changed, he got to know the people in his new area. And uh, I was thrilled, a bit surprised, but thrilled to see um, uh, Claudia Thornburg and her husband, Ed, from Winchester, drove from Winchester to the Henry County Historical Society the night that we unveiled the book. And that's how much they thought of Tom because of his service in Randolph County. And I thought that spoke volumes, you know, for somebody to drive from Winchester. And, well, you had others that drove farther. Yeah. Um, and, I, and, again, that's a tribute to Tom and his character and his leadership. Well, that's how the book signing at French Lick came about because uh, John – I'm having a senior moment – John Noblet, who owns the paper in Paoli – uh, and he was on the county council down there. He and I got to know each other through, and he was planning on coming to the book signing up here and he couldn't make it. And he said, well, why don't you have a book signing in French Lick? And I said, well, you set it up and I'll come. And so they did. And we didn't sell a lot of books, but I saw a lot of people. And, um, and I, you know, it was, it's humbling. You make a lot of friendships across. That's why I would have made a good statewide office holder. Mike Pence missed the boat there. <laughs> yeah, so that's what, uh, what you want to be as lieutenant governor? No, no, no. I <laughs> I I wanted to be state auditor and uh, that's in the book. That's uh, Yeah, that's uh that was in the notes too. A uh, chapter entitled A Brief Attempt at Statewide Office. But that's when you I had, never knew that you had uh, tried. Well, we never got on the ballot because it happened there was a vacancy when Tim Barry became uh, state party chairman, the governor was going to appoint a replacement. And I had, I had been approached as I was traveling the state by Democrats and Republicans who thought I should run for the job. And I kind of laughed it off. And then soon I got to talking and, and Tim Barry had the same background I did. And I said, well, let's see what happens. And so we, anyway, it's a new name now. It's the state controller. Yeah. Happened, uh, happened this year or last, yeah, last year. year. Yeah. I missed that one completely then, that it, it changed. There's a, you know, God works in mysterious ways. Cause had I been the state auditor, then Suzanne Crouch would not have become the state auditor who would not become lieutenant governor, who would not be a candidate for governor who I'm supporting, by the way. Um, so small world. So you mentioned the casino that you've had long term ties. And this is, I think, person to person relationships that you built. Uh, in supporting the uh the boat the moat project down in uh, down in French Lake, mm -hmm. how how did you, you legislator from Louisville, Indiana, end up so tied into Orange County and what was going on down there? I'm not much of a gambler, but I do like history and I like the historic hotels that were there. And I'd always read about West Baden. I'd went down there and looked through the fence and saw where the buildings were falling down and. And Jerry Denbo, one of the three guys in the hall with John Gregg when he told me I had a bullseye on my back, he was the Republican who represented that part of the state. And 
you usually have or you used to have, if you're going to introduce a piece of legislation, you had a Democrat author and a Republican co-author. And so I asked Jerry if I could be the Republican co-author on the legislation to give the casino license to French Lake West Baden. So, and we only had at the time in Indiana, we only had river boats, river boats, right? And, and there's there there was one not, license left. Yeah, they're not close to a river. No, so uh, I had to. I didn't have to, but I would take legislators who didn't really support gaming. I'd take three or four of them along with a lobbyist who represented Cook Medical, and we'd take them down and, and take them through West Baden and French Lick and show them the facilities and what we needed to do to save these facilities. And so there was a group of senior citizens from down there that made the daily trick to Indianapolis called the Orange Shirts, and they were all 60s, 70s, 80s years old people. And there was uh, Jack Carnes and... Uh, Geneva Street, Geneva, a little short lady. She's a beautician. At that time, she had really bright red hair. And we would we would pass the legislation in the House. But when it went to the Senate, Larry Borst would kill it. And Larry was a practicing veterinarian. And when these people, the orange shirts, came to the legislature and they'd meet us every day, they'd, they'd hand out orange slices or orange golf balls or, you know, anything to promote Orange County to try to help them. And he would never meet with them. So Geneva found out that he was a practicing veterinarian and she had a big collie dog. So one Saturday morning, she made an appointment to take her collie to the vet. So she drove up from French Lick, Indiana to Greenwood, Indiana to a veterinarian's office. Once she got in the office to see the veterinarian, Larry Borst, that was it. <laughs> she she got wearing him. an orange shirt. She got him. Yeah, she got him. So we were finally. That dog able- got so many unneeded vaccinations. Yeah. So that, that's. Uh, <laughs> That uh, one you had to sacrifice one animal for an entire <laughs> county, Daryl. <laughs> but uh, then they were able to get the light for a boat and a moat. So because they wanted to put it on Lake Potoka, they wouldn't let them do that. So Mr. Cook, why wouldn't they? Because it was a DNR lake or whatever. What was the problem with that? Because well, Potoka Lake's a huge lake. Yeah, but it's not DNR. It's the Army Corps okay. of Engineers. Right. Anyway, they didn't want it. So once Mr. Cook got involved, who was a godsend for the project, they built a building. Looked like a boat, had paddle wheels on inside. And then they put water around it, which he wanted to name Lake Geneva in Geneva's honor. And she said, no, no, no. So they had this boat and a boat. And he always made the statement that I have a resort hotel with a casino. We're not a casino hotel. And then when we passed land base, land base casino, he calls me and he said, um, those paddle wheels on that boat make my hotel look cheap. Can I take them off? <laughs> and I said, well, let me check. So, yeah, I called him back and said, yeah, you can. So he added on to the boat. They've added on to that. They've added on to that building twice. They've the taken boat. the paddle wheels off of it, and they filled in the lake. But now if you drive between French Lick and West Baden on the new road, which is Geneva Street Street, uh, Geneva still got some uh, – you know, Donald Trump was whining and dining her when he wanted the license for French Lick, and Mitch Daniels said no. Thank goodness. He wanted to take the license from there and move it up to one of his casinos. No, he wanted to run. He wanted to run the French Lick casinos. Oh wow! 
He said, "Boy, he what said, could have possibly gone wrong?" Well, how many times would he have filed for bankruptcy down there? But you know, it's it's, and every time I go down there, and I've we went down after Thanksgiving, and we went down after Christmas. You see all the growth. You know, they were had the highest unemployment. And now the unemployment's low. They're building new housing down there. The hotel is. It's it's just been a win-win situation for the Southern Pony State. It's a beautiful spot. It's it's just close enough. You know, our, our, my family and Zach's family, we like to go down camping. So uh, Patoka is only 15, 15 minutes away from the Patoka campground up to up to West Bay. Now you have a setting legislator who represents. He, he has a, a, a marina on Lake Patoka. Yeah. Yep, you have to drive right through it to get to the uh, yeah to get Steve to the Bartle, and then Rick Rick, who's helped with my campaign, helped with his campaign. So, so tell us about. Um, let's circle back to John Gregg. He is listed again towards the end of your book as an unlikely friend. How did uh, I want to know? Like through the years, John Gregg. I I know John Gregg as candidate for governor. Right. Hey, you know, Speaker of the House is. Way before the time I started paying attention. So, I mean, he was Speaker of the House when I, the year I was born. But, uh, <laughs> no, you make me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> so, was he really? Wasn't Paul, Paul Manweiler? 1996? I never served. Uh, Paul Manweiler was, was he the before Speaker you? before me. Uh, okay. Paul Manweiler is the one that recruited me, but Paul was never the Speaker while I was in the legislature. Gotcha. So, how did, how did it go from... Enemy to friends. Well, John retired from the legislature. I don't remember what year. I think. And then Andy had his accident. And. You know, they talk about the favoritism Andy got. He really got more scrutiny than if it had been you had the accident. And. John called me one. I was setting it. I missed two weeks of the legislature and I had to go back because we were short one Republican member and the Democrats were taking advantage of it. And uh, I'm on the floor of the house. And when the Democrats were in charge, we'd still be in session at 1030 at night. And about 10 o'clock one night, they came to me and said, John Gregg's on the phone, wants to talk to you. And I went into the Paul Manwire's office and or Brian Bosman's office and John said, Tom, your son's getting screwed because who his dad is. He says, I got an attorney that's ready to take the case if you want any help. And I said, well, who's the attorney? And he told me, and I said, well, he represented Mike Tyson. That'll never fly in Newcastle, Indiana. I said, I appreciate it, John, but no thanks. And he said, just call me if you need help, Tom. And and so. Was it, is this Jim Boyle? Jim Boyles, yep. yeah. Yep. And I tell about going and seeing Jim Boyles and. $250,000 later. And, but anyway, I ended up having to call John and he took, he got me in contact with Jim Voiles. And, and um, so then after Andy gets sentenced to jail, uh, they came after me for obstruction of justice. And I'm over in Winchester when I get the call that they're going to convene a grand jury to come after me for obstruction of justice. And, I called John Gregg and I said, I need Jim Boyles. And he goes, no, no, you can't use Jim Boyles. I'll get you somebody else. Just keep your mouth shut until you talk to an attorney. So it, it's ironic for the guy who tried to take me out to be my best friend when, when I needed, when I needed the help I needed. And I think that's a true credit to, um, 
Tom's personality and his way with people. That uh, it didn't matter who you were, Democrat, Republican. Uh, Tom always saw the best in people and had a way of, as Abraham Lincoln used to say, making making your enemies your friends. All right, the last thing I wanted to cover um, that I need to know about before I read the book. And once again, this is uh, what we've talked about is they're all chapters, a very small fraction of the chapters too, by the way, there's so much more that's in the book. So go buy the book. Um, It's only $20. It's easy. So an unknown person who saved my life. (laughs) What, uh, what is this about? Well, you know, when we were in the legislature, I had the opportunity one time to meet uh, Dr. Halleck. You know the guy that invented or showed how to do the Heimlich. Did, are you serious? Yeah, he was at. He got to meet a lot of people. You met everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he was at State House, and I got a. So Tom was choking on a piece of steak. I was. The- <laughs> I was choking on a a, a quarter pounder at uh, at uh, Burger King over in Avon, Indiana. I was over there calling on a courthouse and had stopped there on thirty six and had grabbed a sandwich and was eating and talking too quick and. And I'm by myself and I get choked on the quarter pounder and, you know, there's, and I thought, well, if I can get to that salad bar over there, I can push it, you know, put my stomach against it and push. Well, I got to the salad bar, but I was almost ready to go down. And this guy steps up from behind me and does it. And I spit the sandwich out and uh, he walks away. Wow. And didn't you think, stick around. I didn't even get a chance to say thank you, you know. So. Wow. Well, maybe one day he'll read your book and yeah, he'll go, hey, I that was that. me. Yeah. <laughs> I saved that guy's life. Well, if he does, he can call. He's going yeah. to be walking through. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> he's going to be walking around in Bloomington at the filibuster Phil, Phil press. And uh, he's going to see this picture on the book and go, Wait a minute. I think I was a little younger than that. I day. think I know that guy. And he only saw him in the back of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's, you, 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 you tweaked a, an interest in me when you were talking about how they'd call you up and say, Hey, we got to get you down here for this. There, there was also an era in your time in the legislature where at times legislators would have to go over state lines or they would go over state lines. You have any stories from that, from that era where they would have to, they would all run away? Well, you mean us or them? Well, I, I, well, the first year I was there, the Republicans left. Yeah. We seem to forget that. <laughs> uh, we wanted to do something on property taxes, and the Democrats didn't. And so the Republicans walked out and for a week. We went over to the east side. We found some lady. Her first name was Doris. Her tax, she hadn't paid her taxes. Her gas was shut off. Her roof was leaking. Excuse me. She had broken windows in her house. The yard was full of trash. So we went in, excuse me, as Republicans, cleaned up her yard, put a roof on her house, painted her house, paid her taxes, paid. You know, if we couldn't help every taxpayer, he's going to help her. Got good press for us. Uh, they sent the state police after us, and everybody hid behind trees. Well, hell, they saw, you know, they did. And Steve Goldsmith even came and brought us lunch one day. So it's like everybody knew where we were at. But um, they did. We did go back into session. I remember we went in in our sweatshirts, and you're supposed to have a tie on. So we had 
ties and sweatshirts and and we went back starting to sound like a senator from pennsylvania yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. but <laughs> the problem is you know then when the democrat or yeah when the democrats went to illinois so this the first time was in mid 90s late 90s that for you? 96 97 somewhere yeah. right there and then when the democrats went to illinois i know why they did it mitch daniels would have actually had him arrested and drugged back to the state house and um and and when they, they would leave, one member, one Democrat member would come every day. And I remember one day, uh, Scott Reskett, who represented Anderson, he came back and I was over talking to him. And um, one of our members said, Tom, come here. You're not supposed to be talking to them. I go, are we a bunch of kids or what? I mean, it's like, and then uh, uh, Ed Delaney called me on the phone. He said, Tommy said, we'd like to come back, but the leadership won't negotiate with us. Can you help us? Well, they wasn't gonna listen to me, you know. So, what was the issue that they were they were hi- they were not hiding? They were uh, hanging out in Illinois for when the when the was it right to work? right to work? Right to, right to, yeah. yeah. So it was yeah. union. It was yeah. it was Indiana becoming a right to work. Well, state. and then that's right after Senator uh, Lysing got drawn into this district. This is in the book. Uh, the local chamber called the senator and I into the office and said, "We don't want you supporting right to work." You know, we had the largest automobile factory in the world here at one time. We still got uh, retirees from Chrysler worried about their their pensions and their medical insurance. We don't want you supporting right to work. So I go back to Indianapolis. Of course, the Republicans are supporting right to work. And uh, you my find leader, yourself on the wrong side of the issue says, again. Tom, uh, we, you can vote for this. And I'm going, no. Well, we got polling data that shows you can vote for this and still get elected. And I said, well, show it to me. Well, no, but you have to take our word for it. And I go, well, I'm not voting for it. <laughs> and Senator Lysing told him, Tom's doing exactly what they're telling him to do in the county. Well, then I hear that the state chamber of commerce is going to find me a primary opponent because I won't vote the way they want me to vote. So I called the guy from the chamber over. So the county chamber and the state chamber have different ideas. And when I call him over, he says, I said, my locals don't want me voting for this. He goes, they shouldn't be telling you how to vote. And I said, well, hell, you gave me a book the first <laughs> of every session with every bill listed. We want you to support this or oppose that. And I said, you know what? If I'm going to listen to anybody, I'm going to listen to my locals. Well, you're going to get a primary opponent. And I said, well, this meeting's over. You know. <laughs> did you get a primary opponent? I did not. Nobody, they tried. Nobody that lived here once said, I don't want to touch they, that. They asked, they asked Ed Janus, I know for a fact. I, they tried, but, um, you know, I tried to do what. His, Ed had run in District 56 or whatever at the time. It was drawn out differently. And I think he would, had he, he had run once before. Yeah. Or maybe he ran after. I don't know if he'd run. Anyway, they asked him and I know they asked somebody else. Yeah. But, you know, I tried to do what I thought was best for the district and the people that I represent, and I honestly, God, did not look at the Democrat or Republican behind the people's names. I mean, there's a part in the book I say it's my best day as a legislator when I helped Mister Farmer down around Knightstown, and and after I did it, my legislative assistant said, "Tom, I think they're Democrats," and I said, "Well, if they didn't vote for me the last time, I bet they vote for me the next time." You know, so just- that's why the book title I think is really appropriate and uh, uh, I did not come up with the title but I think it's perfect Tom what are you doing here 
And uh, a lot of people ask that question to Tom over the years. Well, what, what was he doing there? He was serving his district. He was serving the people who elected him. And he was serving not only the people who voted for him, but the people who voted against him that lived in the district. And uh, I, I wish there were more legislators, both state and national, uh, that had that same approach. Uh, it's, it really is a rare breed. And it's hard. I mean, you have to be willing to think, well, I'm not going to be a committee chair and I'm not going to get this bill heard. And, but you know, back to when I was elected, the voters overwhelmingly replaced the Democrat representative with me, but Henry County overwhelmingly voted for Franco Bannon for governor. And he wanted to have a blue ribbon commission on property taxes. And so. My leadership came to me one day and said, we're going to have a press conference on property taxes. And hell, I'm a freshman. You're supposed to be seen and not heard. We're going to have the Ways and Means chairman there, the leader there, and we'd like for you to be there as your former assessor and you understand property taxes. So we go across to the Senate caucus room. We're on the fourth floor. And we got all the media there. I'm standing there straightening my tie. you know, And they just start beating the hell out of Frank O'Bannon. Well, it was Thursday night. I hadn't been home since Monday. There was a door right there, so I just kind of start doing the sidestep. And when I get to the door, <laughs> I take off down the steps. I get down three flights of steps, and somebody jerked a hole. Where the hell do you think you're going? And I said, I'm going home. I said, it's Thursday night. I haven't been home from Monday. I said, you know, let him have his commission. If we don't agree, if I don't agree with that, then I'll say something. But I said, I'm not going to badmouth him because he's a D and I'm an R. And I said, the voters of my district overwhelmingly elected both of us and they expect me to work with the guy. And I'm going to do that. That's not how it works here, Tom. I know. <laughs> but at that time, we still had to build Indiana projects. And I submitted, we told, we were told to submit our list for half a million dollars each, which I did. So this is to try to get a, uh, an earmarked project done yeah. in your district yeah, or in I your county? Fire, yeah, I put fire trucks in because every volunteer fire department needed a fire. So I put in so many fire trucks, half a million dollars. And then they come back to us and say, we well, need to cut your list because Democrats are going to get a half a million, but the Republicans are going to get 400 because they're in charge. So I redo my list and they come back the next day and said, well, Republicans are going to get 300,000 Democrats. Are gonna so I redid my list. And so anyway, at the end of it, uh, we, it's in the budget. I vote against the budget because I, they lay it on my desk at 15 minutes till 12, and I'm supposed to – I said I wouldn't vote for one I couldn't read. I vote against the budget. I come home. A couple of days later, my leader calls, and he goes, did you cut a deal? And I said, excuse me? He said, did you cut a deal? And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. He said, you got a half a million dollars in Build Indiana funds, and the rest of us only got 300000 How'd that happen? I said – I don't know. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't. <laughs> well, I found out later, a good friend of mine, his wife was the budget director for the Democrats. And we were talking one day over dinner and he said, you know why you got that money? And I said, no, I honestly don't. He said, you remember that day you walked out of that press conference? He said, Frank O'Bannon told the Democrats that you were willing to give him the benefit of the doubt to give you what you give everybody else. So the voters of District 54 got a little more money because of that. So, so 
how is the relationship with governors? Obviously, you, you worked – hell, you may have worked with six of them, I guess, O'Bannon and Kernan. And- I worked with Evan Bike for six days. <laughs> Good mean, conversations. I mean, he, uh, he wouldn't say – <laughs> I tried to speak as he went out the door. Uh, I I like I liked Frank O'Bannon. We were we went to French Lick and we went to uh, uh, Corridon. There was a statue of Frank O'Bannon on the courthouse square in Corridon, State House Square, and they had a Santa. Claus it's our first tavern. state capital, yeah, right? Yeah. So when we we were down there, I think after Thanksgiving, and I got out of the car, went over and patted Frank on the shoulder and and uh, said a few words, but. I, I like serving with Frank O'Bannon. He got mad at me a couple of times. They, one time we were, they said, the governor's going to need some Republican votes to pass the budget. He'll look for the weakest link first. Well, we're sitting there voting, and one of the governor's aides comes and pats me on the shoulder, and she said, of course, everybody's looking at me. The governor wants to see you in his office, and I'm going, um, well, we're voting, and I'm not leaving until we're finished. Well, that's all right. I'll sit here and wait on you. I, you know, everybody's looking at you. So after we're done, they take me down to the governor's office, and Frank O'Bannon and Joe Kernan, and then the chief of staff was there. And the governor was telling me why he needed this, and and um, I had enough sense to write down on a little piece of paper that if I was going to vote for it, I needed – total elimination of personal property and something. I don't remember three things on the card. And then when he got finished, I said, well, governor, here's what I want. I said, if you can do this, this, and this, I'll vote for the budget. And he, he said, no, nah, I can't, I can't do that, Tom. And I said, well, then I, I can't vote for the budget. And he said, well, you know what, Tom? He said, I'm going to get on that airplane. You guys criticized me about, and I'm going to fly to Newcastle and I'm going to tell them you're a do nothing legislator. And I said, well, Governor, that's unfortunate because my voters think you ought to sell that airplane, be, sell your airplane before you start raising taxes. And he gets, it's not my airplane. <laughs> <laughs> so he was not happy with me. So they had just redrawn the maps. And after session's over, I'm over in Randolph County for something. And he was a speaker. And they introduced everybody, but they didn't introduce me. And when he got up to speak, he said, hey, you forgot to introduce your new state representative, Tom Saunders. He'll do you a good job here. You know, so he didn't hold grudges. Uh, Joe Kernan was good to work with. Mitch did a lot of good things for the state of Indiana, but Mitch held grudges. If you didn't vote with him on everything, you weren't. You weren't on the team. Player. Yeah. And I wasn't a team player. Any what what issues in particular did you clash with them? Because uh, I know his big ones were the toll road. the, the- well, I the toll road I voted for. I voted for daylight savings time, although I wish now I hadn't. Um, <laughs> he closed the Knightstown Children's Home. Yep. And he and I. And that was a big fight. He and I fought. I guess I called him out in the hall one day. I was speaking to the crowd and I said, Hey, Governor, we're out here. Come out and talk to us. And one of the other guys goes, My God, Tom, you just called the governor out. And I go, Oh, and he knew us come out and talk to us. You know? so, <laughs> when we were doing the one budget thing very early in my career, we would go downstairs in the caucus room and spend hours down there trying to decide what the governor would accept. And so after sitting there three hours, I excused myself and went to the restroom. And then I went upstairs to see the governor and I went in and I, I said, governor, would you accept this, this, and this? Yeah. He said, I'll even come downstairs and talk to your caucus if you want me to. So I go back downstairs, Paul Wayne, while I was a leader. I said, I just in to see the governor and he said he'd accept these three things and he'll come down and talk to us. And they go, 
who gave you that authority? And I go, I didn't know I needed anybody's authority. I just, well, no, no, no governor will ever come into another office. And so we didn't pass the budget. We had to come back for special session. Guess who the first person that came in the Republican caucus to talk to the members was, was, was Frank O'Bannon. So, you know. Sometimes all you can do is pick up the phone and have a conversation. All they can tell you is no. <laughs> <laughs> so your career has very interestingly lined up with future vice president or vice president Pence's career. He had, he had the same congressional district you did. You served, He was governor when you were uh, a state representative. How how was that relationship? And did you get much interaction with him in, the, in your time serving together? I will say that. When Andy was in trouble, Mike Pence flew home and met with Sue and I and prayed with us. Um, uh, I, I was considered to be the state auditor, although he had to make a, he just, he chose to make a historic appointment. Um, he offered me something else in return and I, I turned it down. Um, he always was gracious enough to meet us at the Capitol building and, when I took groups out there and then Sue and I were in New York the week that Donald Trump was going to make the announcement for who his VP was. And uh, when I found out we were only two blocks from the hotel and it was going to be Mike Pence, I called back to Indianapolis and said, Hey, I'm two blocks from the hotel. Can you get me in? And so um, Sue and I and, and uh, Raj who's charge of and head of the IMPA power agency the Trump family was on the first row and Tom and his group were on the second. And when Mike and Karen came out with the Trump people, the lights were so bright, all the national press is behind us. And uh, Karen Pence saw us first and elbowed Mike, you know? So when they got off the stage to leave, Mike came down and said, what are you doing here? <laughs> and I said, Forrest Gump, I was in the neighborhood. I couldn't <laughs> let you do this by yourself. And then, during the inaugural parade, Karen and Mike are walking with the family, and we had a group from Indiana. We yelled at him, and he, you know, he came over. So, I, I, he owes me a night in the Lincoln bedroom. He told me he'd let me stay there, and it wouldn't cost me two hundred thousand uh, dollars. That's their fire truck money, yeah, Tom. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know Bill, Bill Clinton used to charge to stay in the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, you know, when I was growing up. What Mike Pence did on January the 6th would have made him a hero, and he should be the next nominee, nominee for president of the United States. That math doesn't work it's, now. It doesn't work now, and I don't know what's wrong with the country for thinking that way. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I don't get it. I, and, and this is, you know, we're, this, tonight's about your book and talking about your history, but, um, yeah, we are heading straight into a presidential election that is the most, it does not, Every every bit of political knowledge and history and experience that I have is just worthless. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, you've got one candidate. Chris Christie is the only person that's running for president right now that's actually saying, you saying know, it. actually that actually makes a bit of sense to me on the on the Republican side. And it just it's a surreal world. And I you can see you can see where we're going, unfortunately. And uh, I just don't understand it. I, I you know, on on January the sixth. I was flipping the house in Louisville and I wa- I walked in for lunch and the TV was on and I'm seeing this raid on a rush on the Capitol building. And I stood there and almost cried and I could get a hold of five 
United States representatives and one senator on this phone. And I text them all and said, we're all guilty of this because nobody stood up and said nobody stole an election. Now's your opportunity to be statesmen and not politicians. Make me proud. I heard from two people. I heard from Trey Hollingsworth. And then that night, Greg Pence called me. And he said, Tom, when the Secret Service took Mike, they took me with him. And I said, well, you were a fool. You look so much like your brother, they could have thrown you to the mob and they'd have had who they wanted. And he said, Tom, I think they would have actually hung us if they'd have got us. I mean, what does that say for the direction we're going? It just... Yep. Well, you can tell him that we weren't there on January 6th, so he can come on the podcast anytime. <laughs> yeah, there's an open invitation. Well, he's back in Indiana now. So, Well, and then I took the group to uh, California, the Nixon Reagan Library, and we had Martin Sheen was supposed to meet us. That didn't pan out. Um, I had three or four surprises for the group. None of them panned, panned out. So there is a picture of uh, President Bartlett hanging on the wall over your shoulder. I mean, over he there. was, spo- Yeah, he was supposed to meet us. But um, – when we went to the Reagan Library, who was there for a book signing? Karen Pence. <laughs> <laughs> so Karen comes in and meets with our group before she does the book signing. I said, we had to go all the way to California to see a former First Lady of Indiana and the United States. So. All right. Well, as we, as we get ready to wrap up here, I do want to ask you, you've, you've struck up a friendship with uh, Emilio Estevez's father, Martin Sheen. Mm-hmm. How, how'd that one happen? Wrote him a letter. Uh, during the COVID, I used to do a, uh, cancer auction at state house with sell political items. And I talked to Aaron Dickens and we were talking about, we watched West wing as a binge watch when we couldn't go anywhere, couldn't do anything. Same issues 20 years ago, same issues we was dealing with today. So I had a couple of, I had four campaign posters made. And I sent them to him and asked him if he'd signed two for the auction, one for me and one for the governor. And they were gone and gone and gone. And then one day I go to the post office. They're there with a nice two-page handwritten letter from Martin Sheen, apologizing for how long it took. Um, And on my poster, he talked a little about the show and he, he, he used Jimmy Carter as an example of president when he was playing and, and, um, on my poster, he wrote a Bobby Kennedy quote. I can't remember it now, but one, one strong person makes a majority. But anyway, so I went to the state library and bought, uh, there was a new book out, Bobby Kennedy in the 1968 Indiana primary. And I sent that to him and he wrote me back a nice little note. And then I wrote back and said, well, I do this roving elephants group. We're coming to California we don't have a real president to visit with. Would you consider meeting with us? He said, yeah, I could do that. And, but unfortunately his production schedule and I just didn't meet out. He's but, still an active movie star. Yeah. But I have his home address now, so I could not. <laughs> we went by his house in Malibu, but I, I toned it down. <laughs> you just, you just have to hang out. All you have catch to do it. is you, write the letter. All I can tell to say you is, is no. the power of writing a letter. That's, that's there, a not, lost art. Not yeah. a whole lot of people get letters anymore. Yeah. So you can get through if you write the letter. Right? You know, I've met, uh, there was a book came out called final witness by Paul Landis, who was a Mrs. Kennedy's second secret service agent. He was, 
on the car behind him in Dallas. And I wrote him a letter. He lives over in, in Ohio and he and I've become friends. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know he, he's been wanting to know about my book. And I said, well, and, and the day his come out, I called him the night before and I said, I wish you, well, I called him. He said, Tommy said, I just did an article with, um, Vanity Fair, and he said it's under lock and key until September 1st. And he said, then all hell's going to break loose. Well, I thought he meant he was going to have to work hard to sell his book. I didn't know he was blowing the Warren Commission theory out the window, you know. So, <laughs> but the, you know, you've always heard, always heard of the pristine bullet. And then he just, magic bullet. yeah, yeah, pristine or magic. He threw that out the window because he picked it up on the back seat of the car, took it in yeah. the hospital. So, but to hear, that come from people you actually meet, you know, the yeah. guy that arrested Oswald, Mrs. Kennedy's private secretary. I mean, she was in Dallas with them also. You've completed most of their investigation by a government official uh, yet. Yeah, yeah. I haven't found Jackie's pillbox hat. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys see how difficult it was for me as a reporter before I had access to a recorder to keep up with all this stuff. I mean, this is wonderful stuff. It's fantastic. And it's a reason they should buy the book, obviously. I, I'm so happy Zach hit the record button over there on the other side, and I'm I'm very much excited. I I don't want to conclude the interview, but I want to go home and read the book. <laughs> I'm excited. Well, you can get it at the Historical Society. This. Yeah, Henry yeah. County Historical Society has copies of Tom's book. All right. Um, and then, Daryl, uh, this is where we, we do final thoughts. We start to go around the room and make sure we clean anything up. So if people want to get the uh, the the coffee table book, uh, this is this is full size. Like it's 11 by 17, 11 by 14. I don't know. It's a it's a big it's a it's a bulky it's item. 124 pages. And uh, right now you can get it at the Henry County Historical Society, the Castle Point Barbershop. Uh, they've been friends of uh, the Historical Society and mine for years. And so they have uh, some of the books, and I think I'm going to try and get some to the Chamber of Commerce office here in the near future. There's about, I would say there's about 70 left. It's kind of a limited printing, so I uh, would encourage people to, to if they're interested, to, to please let us know, because uh, I'm hopeful that by spring they'll be gone. Very good. And this is, uh, it does tie in perfectly to the 200, to Newcastle's 200 years old right now. Yes. Yes. Very good. Uh, anything else we forgot? What's your I, next book deal going to be? Uh, well, it's interesting that you say that because, uh, I have, um, been working with Arcadia Publishing. Uh, mm-hmm. Doug Majors and I had an Arcadia book, uh, Images of America Newcastle published in, uh, 2013. And uh, I, for years, I wrote a column in the Courier Times called Historically Speaking. And uh, uh, in, uh, I think, May is when they have earmarked, it's going to be called The Hidden History of Henry County. It's an Arcadia book that's filled with my columns that I wrote for the Courier Times over a 10-year period about various things in history, things people may not realize. Uh, number one, I'm a Moreland resident. And uh, Moreland was home to a lieutenant governor. I don't know how many people realize that. Crawford Parker. Crawford Parker came uh, with an eyelash of becoming governor of Indiana in 1960. And uh, that's that's an example of the type of columns that will be featured in that book and also with Doug Majors and Mike Bertram pictures. Did he lose to Matt Welsh? 
He did. He did. He did. Man, I'm a New York kid, and I got that right. I feel so good. I didn't get Indiana history in fourth grade because I moved here in fifth grade, Tom. I had to study up. I played. (laughs) I was also a year behind. Well, and I wanted to write another book because when we were talking, there was a banker in Louisville, Indiana, who also happened to be the Republican county commissioner who was responsible for building the addition to the Henry County Courthouse. And one night he closed up the First National Bank of Louisville got on the inner urban with his youngest daughter, who was a student at Butler University. They rode to Indianapolis together. Holly Hall was never seen again. And when they opened up the bank the next morning, everything that was in it was gone. And I have an original Holly Hall wanted poster and his lockbox from the bank. I think that would make a great story. We need to go to the FBI and get their files. Sounds like an assignment. To me. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys have got some investigative reporting to do. Sounds like another <laughs> and, book. And, and Chris yeah. Spangle will set you up with your uh, your investigative podcast. Yeah, on the uh, the uh, on Heartland uh, Media. Now. On Heartland Media. All right, Zachary Bertram, you what do you got to report from the city council meeting? You were you were down there today uh, this week. Um, you showed up a day early. I heard. <laughs> okay, <laughs> only the claim for. The city gets New Year's Eve and New Year's Day as a holiday, and so they gave them an extra day because New Year's Eve fell on a weekend. I was like, hey, guys, calm down. Work like, for the government. Yeah, well, I work for the government, <laughs> and I understand if it's like a Friday or if it's during the week, send people home early. But to give them, another, to give them the holiday on the wrong year in which that day occurred is a stretch. <laughs> yeah, I showed up the day after New Year's. I was smart enough not to show up on the holiday. I get there, I'm like... What is this? And so, yeah, I had to show. So, yeah, my week's all messed up because city council's on Wednesday. So, they swore in all the everybody. Just I think there's only new person was Ashley Huffman uh, replacing Brenda Greider. Um, and other than that, there wasn't a lot. It was a lot of allocating money. We're getting some new police cars. Those have gotten a lot more expensive. Um, I saw somehow we spent $5,000 of ARP money for basketball, which I'm all for basketball, but yeah, I don't know it how it's COVID a, related. Yeah, it was for sponsoring a shootout a shootout thing that they did over the holiday at the field house, I believe. Um, and it's all, most of it's going to go in. I think all of it is, is going to go into um, scholarships for the schools that participated in the tournament. Yeah. That was the knockout yeah. uh, contest that they had. They were trying to break, uh, 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 break the record for the bicentennial. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, I'm talking about basketball. There's a chapter in the book about Marion Pierce from Louisville, who held the record for the most points scored in a high school basketball career until Damon Bailey broke it. But Marin did it at two points per basket. Damon had three. He had a three. So, yeah, so I think Marion still holds the record. Yeah, see. Anybody that's ever seen Marion Pierce play would say he had a few three-pointers in his career. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what, Newcastle's Fieldhouse was on the news because I don't remember his name. There's an official for a DHSA that managed to officiate a game in every high school gymnasium in the state. It's currently active. And I was like, they got to mention Newcastle. They got to mention, and they did. They showed the, yeah, they, he went to, he even did the world's largest. I was like, dang straight. You better well, give us our credit. And didn't him and the us. governor, didn't the governor shoot basketball in every gym in the state? I think, I yeah. think he had, yeah. At least in every county, I believe. Ten. Okay. As but he, he was, did Newcastle. Yep. He did the gym. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you were also in Hoosiers, too. You're a movie star oh, yeah. yourself. Yeah. You got an IMDb. Don't blink. <laughs> Actually, I was in Hoosiers as well. Were but, you? But uh, Dakota, as, as Dakota Tom wasn't said, born, and I was three. As Tom said, "Don't blink." What where, what scenes are you guys in the in the well, in, in the Hoosier gym in the basketball I'm in the Hoosier scenes? gym yeah. when they throw uh, him out of the ball game and he turns it over to Gene, uh, 
Dennis, Dennis Hopper. Hopper. Yeah. And I'm Barbara Hershey. Yeah. Barbara Hershey's right here. And I'm kind of right here. Yeah, three days to film that two <laughs> sections. There's a picture. Oh, there it is. I, I did get to, to interview Gene Hackman, uh, which was a real thrill and a nice guy. Nice guy. Yeah. Oh, your Barbara wasn't okay. very nice. She got up and left as soon as her shot was over. He'd stuck around and, and talk to people. You got a favorite Gene Hack Gene wow. Hackman movie other than Hoosiers? Yeah. Uh I think that um was it called Mississippi Burning? Mississippi Burning. All right. Yeah. 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 I, I thought I thought he was very good in that. Tom, it wasn't welcome to Mooseport for you or the uh the one he did with Ray Romano or no. or the one he did with Robin Williams where he plays a senator. Well didn't he do French Connection too? French Connection. There he is, Jerry. Oh yeah, well it's oh you got the circle on it and everything. I That's cut perfect. my I had the beard in the courthouse and of course you couldn't have a beard. And I'd shaved the beard and cut my hair and I it wasn't short enough when I got there. They cut it shorter. I mean everything was done to the fifties style. So might surprise you, but they didn't need to cut my hair. <laughs> what did you play, Daryl? I, I was just in yeah. the crowd. crowd. Yeah. You know, we had several people uh uh Shively, the auctioneer. Yes. He played the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. He had he had a Pretty major brief, but major yeah. scene there. And then most of the attorneys played newspaper men. And uh, and then Whitey's daughter, she ended up getting a job with him going to California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whitey's daughter, uh, Debbie, was a Blue River graduate that was a little bit uh, older than I was when she was in school. And uh, uh, she was a wonderful lady. You know, Whitey was terrific. Uh, I thought he was terrific. And the legend, which is really a fact, but it's going to be a legendary story for years and years, is that Whitey sat down, bought Gene Hackman a sandwich at Sparky's Doghouse in Mount Summit. And so so people can can say Gene Hackman was in Sparky's <laughs> Doghouse in Mount Summit. And uh, I was in Zippers, the bar in Knightstown, and on the wall, I'm sitting there. At 1971. The- I'm sitting there in the bar with my good friend and I'm just kind of looking around. I don't frequent the place, but see if I can find a picture. There's a signed autographed photo of George Jones on the wall <laughs> in the in a small hole in the wall bar in Knightstown, Indiana. And he'd been there? I don't, I'm trying to find the photo. According to Dakota, he had. Yeah, that's going to be my story. <laughs> One interesting thing about Hoosiers, the Courier, I think it was the 10th anniversary. Um, I I helped with the Courier uh, sponsoring a Mm -hmm. night to honor Hoosiers, the film. We showed the film in the Castle Theater. Uh, We introduced some people like Whitey uh, beforehand. Whitey's in the audience. What's Whitey's last name? Shively. Whitey Shively. Ralph right. Whitey Shively. He was an auctioneer. He was an auctioneer, and he's in the audience, and when his scene comes up, he stands up right in the middle of the movie, points to the screen, and says, there I am. <laughs> Never you forget it. You couldn't miss him. Oh, no. And the voice he had, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, his his sister, uh, Frances Courtney, worked for me in this. Oh, after- yes. I remember her. Yes. yes. That is spectacular. Uh, Tom uh, Tom mentioned the French Connection, 1971. That's way before you got 1971, yeah. 
Uh, I we always That's grew up. My parents were very Tom. deep cut movie. He was in <laughs> very deep cut movie was Bat Two One with Danny Glover. I think that was early nineties. Is a I think it's a Vietnam era movie. Uh, but I just we just rewatched the Birdcage. It was on TV, and that is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, where he plays the uh, the uber conservative senator. Is it proper to even watch that anymore? I'm sure that's not. <sighs> I I think it's you know yeah whatever. I what is what is okay to watch at this point? Well, you know, we used to do a mental health dinner mental health to raise money for mental health and it's called who's your idol they still have it matter of fact they've asked me to come do a book signing on the 21st of february but uh <laughs> the, the legislators are supposed to perform and i can't sing i can't dance but lip sync and so who uh mama mia was out and there's a scene that if you watch the the credits where the men are dressed like Elvis and then the ladies, and I was trying to talk some other legislators, female, let's do this. We'll lip sync it. And, and the ladies, they couldn't get the ladies to do it. But one of the other guys goes, well, Tom, we could do it in drag. <laughs> so we did. It's for the children. Uh, we went and bought our bras at Walmart, filled them with birdseed. And, you know, we went into a costume and bought the go-go boots and the whole thing and, and the makeup and, and we raced, we won, we raised $35,000. And in order to get to the stage at the Indiana Theater, we dressed in the front. We had to go downstairs, walk around the block. Just like Gene Hackman at the end of the movie. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> these, these girls came up, wanted to have their picture taken with us. We looked like hookers, I think. And, uh, but anyway, we won. But you, hell, you can't do that today. That's, you know, it's looked down upon but it was all good fun we raised thirty five thousand. I, I just don't think you could do that as a republican today yeah. no I guess way libertarians and democrats yeah. could get away with it well we did it no way you could do that as <laughs> there, a well, matter fact there's a picture in the book one year we did a group of legislators we did robin hood men in tights from mel brooks we, men in tight tights. yeah and we did uh oh brother where out there are in the uh, book yeah so we we had some fun doing it so that's awesome. Well, we appreciate you coming and stopping by. Door is always open, especially to a sitting town councilman. Thank you. Uh, looking looking forward to your uh, to to your reign of terror on the people of of night of, uh, of Louisville, Louisville. I'm, of I'm Knightstown, Louis. You can't hurt Louisville or Knightstown anymore. I, now it's just Louisville. I came. They get uh, your full attention. My campaign. I I pledged we'd have some place to buy a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, or a gallon of gasoline. That was my campaign promises, and I. I intend to stick with that. You, you know what's going to happen is you're going to have to have a cooler on the front porch and say, put $5 in and here's your gallon of milk. <laughs> well, I didn't say where. Yeah. It's, it's a, funny because the day you I, can live up to the, the campaign day, promise. The day Milko I, dairy is right there. I it know, can't be that hard. I, that's fresh milk too. Uh, <laughs> the day after the election, there was a dollar general store semi on the street behind my house, tearing down power lines because the roads was closed. And I said, hell, the truck got here before I got the store <laughs> built. You know, <laughs> I'm ready to make a yeah. delivery. Hey, I want to thank you guys for including me in this interview tonight. And I want to tell you that when I finally do retire, you will get first dibs on the interview. All right. All right. Well, you'll be Holy dead. You won't be a good interview. <laughs> yeah. Stand me up in the corner. Yeah. <laughs> One thing, if uh, you're listening to the podcast and you're wondering where to buy everything, I shared all the links in the chat on the Facebook, including. Uh, Amazon, the filibuster press, and also link the Henry County, uh, historical society's website, which has a store where they've got this, the books listed as well. So I know, I knew when I went, I went there today and got two copies of Tom's book and there were, I bet nine or 10 copies of Daryl's book on a case with tags on them for the various people that were coming to pick them up. So they're moving them through there. So 
spectacular. It's a chance to get yourself some Newcastle and Henry County history and Indiana history. Uh, it's not just uh, not just here. So uh, very exciting times. I value value the uh, the conversation. This is going to live on long beyond today in uh, in podcast form. And I know folks are going to come back and listen to it, especially Andrew Bowman driving the family down to Florida. He's going to listen to this two, three, we four times. We did stand up for him. Yeah, we we drug it out. Dakota's yeah. falling asleep on me. Hope you're still awake, Hudson. <laughs> Dakota, final <laughs> thoughts. Um, yeah. Give him hell, Hudson. Hudson. Keep on, keep on keeping on, buddy. Dump your snack cup, Hudson. <laughs> Dump your snack cup. <laughs> Absolutely terrify, terrify those parents. They're taking you to Disney World. Punish them for every moment they're doing. Uh, and, uh, and, and say hey to Mickey. Mickey's in the public domain. Yeah. He, he's, uh, old Mickey, not old Mickey. Mickey. Original OG Mickey. Yeah. Steamboat, Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. Steamboat Willie. You can, uh, you can do terrible, Only terrible Steamboat things Willie with Steamboat in the Willie. Public domain. Uh, he's very it, limited. That it that's that that my Facebook profile picture is the is Steamboat Willie. I changed yeah. that on New Year's just uh, just for fun uh, to see who'd get the reference. So anyway, uh, thank these guys uh, for being here. Support the book. We will uh, we'll be back next Thursday night with something. <laughs>